All right. Shalom and welcome everyone to our Thursday night group. I'm so excited to see everyone here tonight. This will be a recording that we're going to be putting onto YouTube. Now, I explained last week that I, I've been really frustrated recently that YouTube has been taking down a lot of my videos. I was actually thrown into YouTube prison for about a, it seemed like a month. It was a long time. They were punishing me for uploading a video about uh, the COVID-19 uh, vaccinations being tracked. And so I had to, yeah, so I was, anyways. So my old channel, I used to have an old YouTube channel and I put a lot of focus on making videos that had a lot of visual to it. And it took a long time and I would upload these videos and I'm like, why am I wasting my time making all these visuals when the content itself is more important? So then I started my new YouTube channel a few months ago, uh, probably about a half a year ago now. And as you guys know, I was doing podcasts, but the podcasts were neat and they were kind of, you know, uh, shiny and polished and everything, but it would take me a long time to edit all that content. And again, I'm wondering why am I putting all that focus into these podcasts when I could be doing other things? So now we're starting these discord chats and the, the, the quality of the you know, the, the microphone and, and everything is a little bit down on this, but I really want to emphasize the community and I'm hoping to bring more people from YouTube over here to Discord because this is where it's at. The community on YouTube is really superficial and even in Facebook land is just, that's kind of like a back alley community over there. Um, a lot of you guys know what I'm talking about. So welcome everyone, glad you could be here tonight. I have a bunch of notes in front of me. As I explained earlier before I took my bathroom break, I am drinking coffee right now and I'm pretty wired. And I will be punishing myself later tonight when I cannot go to sleep and I look at the clock and it's one o'clock in the morning. So when you're, you know, turn 40 years old, you have to stop drinking coffee by like one or two in the afternoon or else you can't sleep that night. All right, so as you guys have noticed, there's been a lot of people pouring into Discord over the last few days and it's been really exciting. Hank, my administrator, has been on top of on top of it. I mean he's been he's been going around and like getting names and like you know telling everyone to introduce themselves. So that being said, if you are new to the Discord chat, uh, even if you're here tonight, uh, please take some time to go introduce yourself in in our introduction room so we can get to know you a little bit better. And what else do I have here in my my I have a I have a clipboard of fun of announcements I'm trying to get through. Also, for all the new people coming in, I do want to stress that I am always looking for guest writers. I love guest writers, even in content that I may not come to that conclusion. As long as we can come to some similar worldviews, uh, Torah observant, and flat Earth things like that. But I love when people turn in papers that I don't necessarily come to those conclusions because. Um, over the last several months, I've actually changed my views on quite a few things, and it's only because I had another position to fall back on. And so, um, I, I do, I, I don't, I don't expect everyone to come to my conclusions. I'm being repetitive now, and it's the coffee. I do apologize. Um, I have two regular guest writers on the Unexpected Cosmology. One of them is Polly Hartz. I don't think he's in the room tonight. He joins us a lot of the time. He is a phenomenal writer. So if you have not uh, read any of his work, do check it out. He writes fiction, short fiction, but he's one of those guys, and I've told him this before, that if he were to sell his soul to Satan, 
he would be he he's, he's a brilliant writer and he would be world famous he would be the kind of guy like everyone has read one of his short stories when at some point in their life like when they're in college and he'd be like a household name he's he's i think he's that good i really enjoy his work and thank you he has not sold his soul um, i was not i was being a little facetious but uh but you guys know what i meant by that and secondly i have a series called uh, creation pen and brush and it's by a phenomenal writer named um, Yvonne um, Dias. And she is an artist. And what she does is it reminds me of, of Night Gallery, the Rod Serling show. It was the sequel to The Twilight Zone. He did it back in the, the 60s. Maybe it was the early 70s. And in every episode, he would have a painting in an art gallery that he would base a story around that. So what she does is she actually paints her own portraits from the book of Genesis that all deal with cosmology. And then she writes an article about it. And I think we have seven of her, seven of her papers up right now. And the, the latest one is on Mount Maru and she does phenomenal work. So just want to encourage everyone to check that out. I have new content on cosmology every Friday. And this is one of the reasons, of course, I'm doing these discord discussions now, because I just don't have time to cut all these podcasts and videos anymore. So some of the new articles I have coming out this Friday, I just finished a two-part series on Auschwitz. I don't know if anyone in here read that. Uh, it got, got it, it, The first one got pretty heated. I had some hate mail coming in uh, over that one. And hopefully everyone can guess my um, conclusions on Auschwitz. I don't need to go into that right here. And then I'm starting a new series this Friday on the Black Dahlia hoax. Black Dahlia murder, the, the woman who was cut in half in 1948. Uh, it's going to be a month-long series. So it's going to be five episodes each Friday that comes out. And I'm going to go into great detail. I've only seen one other person online who has ever concluded that it was a hoax, but it was just like a couple paragraphs of information. And so I went into, I, from what I know, I'm the only person who has gone into great detail, devoted five weeks of my life. It was more like four weeks to just go through all the details and show why they're all Freemasons and actors and it's a script and so on and so forth. And that the Black Dahlia lived on afterwards. And if you read my, if you do receive my newsletters, I sent out a couple weeks ago, I sent out a, a newsletter on the, the death of George Reeves, the suicide murder hoax. And of course my conclusion was that was a hoax as well. I think that was the first the first I've seen of anyone putting that together. And so hopefully everyone enjoyed that. And so if you haven't subscribed to my newsletter, I recommend that you do because Zen Garcia will be sending me in a new article any day now. I don't know when. And I'm going to send it out to my newsletter subscribers first before I ever publish it on the website. It's going to be on, uh, not Serpent Seed, it's going to be on Sophia, the feminine uh, Ruach. So I'm really looking forward to that. And he actually dropped that into his newsletter that he's going to be sending it my way. So I do have his confirmation from at least his end uh, that that's going to happen. And then, of course, going over quickly, every Friday I'm putting in a new a new book from the Bible uh, outside of the 66 canon. So every Friday you can go check in for your reading, uh, weekend reading. There's I just, the last couple of weeks have been the infancy gospels of Thomas and uh, Yaakov. And this week, see, what is it? It's going to be on Pontius Pilate, and then I'm doing the, the gospel of Nicodemus. So some really awesome books that I recommend everyone read. And they're going to be, every Friday, you'll find a new one. 
and that's probably good there. All right. I also have a new book coming out here in the next couple of weeks. It's only murder if they're dead. And that's going to be my follow-up to The Hidden Hand of Camelot. And it's basically the whole book focuses on uh, 1969 into 1970 and showing why the Manson murders was all a big psyop and they were all actors and Sharon Tate lives. All right. The last thing I wanted to cover before we jump into this is that I would I'm getting ready. My wife and I are getting ready to go down to Florida for the remainder of the year. Uh, we're going to be down there by the 1st of August. And I am thinking about doing a meetup down there, uh, one or two meetups. And so if anybody listening lives in the area of Florida and would like to take part in a meetup, do get in contact with me. And that way I could kind of arrange it based on where most people are. All right, so tonight I will be, I dropped the article into the, the general voice chat. It's called Sons of Seth or Sons of God. And that article, I also, that link, you can find it on my Genesis page. Um, and this will not be officially published on Cosmology for another two or three months. But I'm so excited about some of the research I'm doing that I don't want to even wait that long to talk about it. So if everyone could pull that up, or you could just listen along. What I'm going to be doing tonight, I will be reading from this. But please, please, please jump in and give your thoughts. Okay, do not worry about interrupting me because we can take our time going through this. This is one of the reasons I will be reading from this is that it is kind of a progressive um, article that, you know, when you come into the truther movement, and, and this, this article has the ability to upset a lot of people in the truther movement because a lot of people came into it because of the sons of Elohim. You know, in Genesis chapter 6, when it talks about the, the sons of Elohim that saw the daughters of men, that they were fair and they came down and, and procreated with them, that, that right there is what brought a lot of people into the truth of the Bible and, and beyond. And so what I want to do tonight is look at the two theories in Genesis 6, the sons of Seth theory, and we'll explain what that is if anyone is confused, and the sons of God or the sons of Elohim theory. And of course, I'll explain a little bit more of that and see if, if it's an either or, like do we have to pick one or the other, or do both of them actually fit together? All right, so I'm going to pull this up. Does anybody, if anybody needs to look at the, if see the link again, let me know. So I'm going to start reading on page one. It's called Genesis 6, Sons of Seth or Sons of Elohim, A New Perspective. You sat in the office of your church pastor attempting to make a case for angels having sex with the daughters of men and weaning hungry baby giants with them, but he wouldn't hear of it. He paid for his indoctrination at the name of the Masonic Zionist institution framed behind his desk and insists the sons of Elohim were really the sons of Seth as angels do not have a penis. I'm hopefully nobody thinks that's too vulgar, but let's face it, that's what we're talking about, right? So, all right, we're talking about sex, so. And are therefore incapable of procreating. The irony is that most denominational pastors would pass a kidney stone at the mere thought as to why the sons of Seth and Cain 
were not to procreate. Serpent seed. I know more angelic sex. The bigger question, though, is why you are still attempting to argue with a graduate of the establishment when you should be fleeing Babylon in order to pursue our Heavenly Father's commands. But that's another topic entirely. Let's face it. Come on, guys. We've all, <laughs> when we all came to the truth, we went into our pastor's office and tried to argue with them, right? And they threw us out, most of us. So, See, I'm already sidetracked. That happens often. We're talking about the Sethite versus Watchers theory in Genesis chapter 6. And finally, after arguing with myself endlessly for the last several years, that's actually uh, legit, guys, <laughs> and rarely seeming to agree, a lot of you guys know I argue with myself probably all the time. I, have I finally have something to offer the truth community. Sons of Seth or sons of Elohim. I've made up my mind on the matter. The choice is self-evident the more I think about it. But I have yet to hear anyone who's come to the same conclusion. The most obvious one, in fact. You want to know what it is, don't you? Well, I can't very well give that verdict right this moment, as you wouldn't believe me if I told you. You will have to see the evidence for yourself while I take the time to build my case. And that's the reason I'm reading this to you guys. If you're already confused, then I will do my best to sum up the sons of Seth or sons of Elohim theory. In Genesis chapter 6, we, we read how the sons of Elohim saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them women of all which they chose. Those adhering to the Sethite theory will claim the sons of Elohim spoken of were in fact the sons of Seth, breaking rank among their own guarded lineage to wed the clans of Cain. Contrarily, the book of Enoch delivers a narrative in which a confederation of angelic beings known as the Watchers, they're led by Azazel and Semjaza, descend from heaven and breed Nephilim giants through human women. There's certainly far more to it than that, but I'm giving you the basics. Beginning with the Yahudim's exodus from Babylon, those are the Jews, and continuing on through the Second Temple period, the Watcher's theory was immensely popular, as even the book of the prophet Daniel includes one such visitor. It would take the Roman church fathers to turn the tide of battle and insist there are no curtains needing pulled, and that the sons of Elohim were in fact human all along. That's the official history, though. I don't necessarily agree with all that timeline, but it's what we're given. One somewhat ancient text, which apparently disagrees with Enoch's watchers, is the first and second book of Adam and Eve. And that's what we're going to be looking at tonight. But does it really, though? We shall see. Another book, which seems to line up with the sons of Sethite theory in Adam and Eve, is Jasher. Then again, Jubilees is hands down in agreement with Enoch in that angels are responsible. You see, even scripture seems to be divided. So which is it, you want to know, Sethite or Watchers? Hold your horses, I'm getting to it. All right, so we, I lined up here the Masoretic text and the, uh, the Aramaic Targum. So let's go ahead and read these side by side. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4 from the Masoretic, the Hebrew Masoretic. Basically, you're King Jimmy, except I'm using the Sefer. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them 
that the sons of Elihim saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them women of all which they chose. And Yahuwah said, My Ruach shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were Nephilim in the earth in those days, who also gathered afterward, when the sons of Elohim came in unto the daughters of men, and they bore children unto them. The same became warriors and tyrants, which were from everlasting, mortal men of the name. All right, now let's read what the Aramaic Targum has to say. Same verses. And it was when the sons of men began to multiply upon the face of the earth, and fair daughters were born to them. And the sons of the great saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and painted and curled, walking with revelation of the flesh and with imaginations of wickedness, that they took them wives of all who pleased them. And Yahuwah said by his word, all the generations of the wicked which are to arise shall not be purged after the order of the judgment of the generation of the deluge, which shall be destroyed and exterminated from the midst of the world. Have I not... Have I not imparted my Ruach HaKodesh to them, or placed my Ruach HaKodesh in them, that they may work good works? And behold, their works are wicked. Behold, I will give them a prolongment of a hundred and, ah, just scrolled away, a hundred and twenty years, that they may work repentance and not perish. Shem, uh, Sam Jazza and Uziel, Azazel, who fell from heaven, were on the earth in those days. And also after the sons of the great had gone in with the daughters of men, they bare to them. And these are they who are called men who are of the world, men of names. Genesis 6, 1-4. Now there's good reason why I lined up the Aramaic Targum right next to the Hebrew Masoretic. Um, I suggest you read the Targum very carefully. Read it again if you have to. Do you see it? Because I do. Not, But of course I'm not ready to... <laughs> divulge quite yet, though. I have underlined what I feel is the most important pieces to the puzzle. Perhaps you can already identify where I'm going with this, but if not, that's okay. Let's keep pushing forward. The granddaddy of all angelic sex stories comes to us in the book of Enoch, and as a reminder, it's the same story from Genesis 6. It reads as follows. This is from chapter 7, as you can see. It happened after the sons of men had multiplied in those days that daughters were born to them, elegant and beautiful. And when the watchers, the sons of heaven, beheld them, they became enamored of them, saying to each other, Come, let us select for ourselves women from the progeny of men, and let us beget children. Then their leader, Semjaza, said to them, I fear that you may perhaps be indisposed to the performance of this enterprise, and that I alone shall suffer for so grievous a crime. But they answered him and said, we all swear and bind ourselves by mutual um, execrations that we will not change our intention and execute our projected undertaking. Then they swore all together and all bound themselves by mutual execrations. Their whole number was 200 who descended upon Ardis, which is the top of Mount Hermon. That mountain, therefore, was called Hermon because they had sworn upon it and bound themselves by mutual execrations. These are the names of their chiefs, Samjaza, who was their leader. Uh, I'm going to butcher these names, guys, but you'll forgive me. Uh, Yurakabaramel. <laughs> okay, let's just skip some of these names. I'm going to butcher them all. But there were the, uh, 
these were the prefects of the 200 angels, and the remainder were all with them. Then they took women, each choosing for himself whom they began to approach and with whom they cohabited, teaching them sorcery, incantations, and the dividing of roots and trees. The dividing of roots and trees, just a side note, I think that's what may have bore some of the giantism. But anyways, I digress. And the women conceiving brought forth Nathaline, and they bore to them three races first, the great Nathaline, the Nathaline brought forth the Nephilim, and the Nephilim brought forth the Iliad, or Iliud. <clears throat> and they exist, and they existed, increasing in power according to their greatness, whose stature was each 300 cubits. These devoured all the labor of men until it became impossible to feed them, when they turned themselves against men in order to devour them. That's a pleasant picture. And began to endure birds, beasts, reptiles, and fish to eat one another's flesh and to drink their blood. Then the earth reproved the unrighteousness. Enoch chapter 7, 1 through 14 from the Sefer. That just about sums it up. Angels had the hots for babes. Together they brought forth the first generation, Nephilim, who then brought forth the Nephilim, and then finally the Nephilim brought forth the Iliad. The Nephilim were huge. The Nephilim were considerably smaller, but still large enough to make shrimps out of the basketball players. And each generation grew tinier. Are the Iliad the, the little people you hear so much about? We are not told. In reality, I actually didn't expect you to read the entire passage. I read it for you. All the better if you did, though. It's why I took the marker out on 200 angels. Enoch makes a case for angels breaking rank from heaven. The defense rests, sort of. As mentioned earlier, Jubilees unquestionably supports the Enochian angels theory. The book itself is purportedly written by angels. Their identities are even given away as the three men who visited Abr Abraham at the Oak of Mamre, according to Jubilees 16, verse 1. So if anybody should know about the inner workings of Genesis 6, it's these three. So this is from Jubilees chapter 5, 1 through 3. And it came to pass when the children of men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them. The angels of Elohim saw them on a certain year of this jubilee, that they were beautiful to look upon. And they took themselves women of all whom they chose. And they bore unto them sons, and they were Nathalene. And iniquity increased on the earth, and all flesh corrupted its way, alike men and cattle and beasts and birds and everything that walks on the earth. All of them corrupted their ways and their orders, and they began to devour each other, and iniquity increased on the earth. And every imagination of the thoughts of all men was thus evil continually. And Elohim looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. And all flesh had corrupted its orders, and all that were upon the earth had wrought all manner of evil before his eyes. Jubilees chapter 5, 1 through 3. And now you probably want to know why I had the tenacity to claim Jasher agrees with the Sethite theory. For starters, the happenings in Genesis 6 are strangely missing. Just because it fails to mention an angelic incursion doesn't mean it didn't happen, you tell me. Also correct. But then consider the similarities between Jasher and the book of Adam and Eve. So this is a book from this is a quote from Jasher, chapter 4, 14 through 16. And it was in the 56th year of the life of Lamech when Adam died. 930 years old was he at his death, and his two sons, 
with, uh, with Enoch and Methuselah, his son, buried him with great pomp, as at the burial of kings. And I highlight this, in the cave which Elohim had told him. And in that place, all the sons of men made a great mourning and weeping on account of Adam. It has therefore become a custom among the sons of men to this day. And Adam died because he ate of the tree of knowledge, he and his children after him, as Yahuwah Elohim had spoken. See what I mean? I took out the trusty marker and I highlighted the fact that Adam was buried in a cave. Definitely not a whoop de doo That's edemic literature right there. And from what I've so far found, edemic literature always takes the Sethite view. Even if edemic literature wasn't a thing yet, and wouldn't be for several hundred more years, according to the official narrative, the writer of Jasher had to be sourcing his information from somewhere. Anyone who has ever read First and Second Adam and Eve will know the cave, or rather the cave of treasures, as it's called there, was a central location in the life of Adam and his Sethite children. So here's a, here's a reading from 2 Adam and Eve, chapter 9, verse 8. Actually, verses 6 through 8. Then Seth, Eve, and their children came down from the mountain to the cave of treasures. But Adam was the first whose soul died in the land of Eden in the cave of treasures. For no one died before him but his son Abel, who died murdered. Then all the children of Adam rose up and wept over their father Adam, and made offerings to him 140 days. So that's really cool. Just side note how that connects with Jasher uh, really well. Then again, Jubilees gives a similar account. And at the close of uh, the 19th Jubilee, in the seventh week, in the sixth year thereof, Adam died, and all his sons buried him in the land of his creation, and he was the first to be buried in the earth. Jubilees chapter 4, verse 29. Jubilee tells us that he was buried in the land of Eden. No mention, though, of a cavern. So there's that. And Jubilee takes the angelic view, not Edemic literature then. Supposing you have no clue what I'm talking about, which probably, probably wouldn't be the first time, the Cave of Treasures was located somewhere near the summit of the Mountain of Worship. Where was the Mountain of Worship exactly? I'll get to that in a little while. From there, Adam and Eve, or Hava, as well as their Sephite descendants, could hear the angels sing in paradise. They could peer through the gate and see the tree of life, still guarded by cherubim. And on a breezy day, they could smell every delectable aroma of the garden. From what I've so far found, every mention of both or either location, the Cave of Treasures and the Mount of Worship, has taken the Sephite view. The picture being formed here is that the sons of Cain left the mountain of worship, choosing their own pursuit of the divine rather than Yahuwah, while the sons of Seth stayed behind, that is, until they too left, eventually. But their abandonment of the mountain, thereby forsaking their calling as the sons of Elohim, wouldn't happen until the days of Jared. I scoured both books seeking a segment that would give the best description of life on the mountain. Second Adam and Eve chapter 11 accomplishes that, so follow along. After the death of Adam and Eve, Seth severed his children and his children's children from Cain's children. Cain and his seed went down and dwelt westward below the place where he had killed his brother Abel. But Seth and his children dwelt northwards upon the mountain of the Cave of Treasures, 
in order to be near to their father, Adam. And by this time, Adam is dead. And Seth the elder, tall and good, with a fine soul and of a strong mind, stood at the head of his people and tended them in innocence, penitent and meekness, and did not allow one of them to go down to Cain's children. But because of their own purity, they were named children of Elohim. There it is. So they're the, they're the sons of Elohim. And they were with Elohim instead of the host of angels who fell. Uh-oh, there's other angels who fell. For they continued in praises to Elohim and in singing psalms unto him in their cave, the cave of treasures. Pause. I highlighted the important parts again. Contextually, we can easily conclude that the host of angels who fell were the sons of Cain, choosing not to remain loyal to the land of Eden. So the Sethite view. Continuing. Then Seth stood before the body of his father Adam and of his mother Eve and prayed night and day and asked for mercy toward himself and his children. And that when he had some difficult dealing with a child, he would give him counsel. But Seth and his children did not like earthly work, but gave themselves to heavenly things, for they had no other thought than praises, doxologies, and psalms unto Elohim. Therefore did they at all times hear the voices of angels, praying and glorifying Elohim from within the garden, or when they were sent by Elohim on an errand, or when they were going up to heaven. For Seth and his children, by reason of their own purity, heard and saw those angels. Then again, the garden was not far above them, but only some 15 spiritual cubits. Now, one spiritual cubit answers to three cubits of man, altogether 45 cubits. Seth and his children dwelt on the mountain below the garden. They sowed not, neither did they reap. They wrought no food for the body, not even wheat, but only offerings. They ate of the fruit in of trees well-flavored, that grew on the mountain where they dwelt. Then Seth often fasted every 40 days, as did also his eldest children. For the family of Seth smelled the smell of the trees in the garden when the wind blew that way. They were happy, innocent, without sudden fear. There was no jealousy, no evil action, no hatred among them. There was no animal passion. From no mouth among them went forth either foul words or curse, neither evil counsel nor fraud. For the men of that time never swore, but under hard circumstances when men must swear, they swore by the blood of Abel the just. But they constrained their children and their women every day in the cave to fast and pray and to worship the Most High Elohim. They blessed themselves um, on the body of their father Adam and anointed themselves with it. And they did so until the end of Seth drew near. Second Adam and Eve, chapter 11, 1 through 14. Hold on, coffee break. Uh, coffee break. All right. That was a rather long passage, but every detail was delectable. Definitely the Sephite theory. Cain and his children were the first fallen angels. And you ob obviously know where this is going by now, as the Sephites will select wives from among the Cains in Genesis 6, thereby becoming fallen angels themselves. The obvious implications here is that the Cains were serpent seed. Ironically, just about anyone who takes the Sethite theory would pass a kidney stone at the mere thought of Satan having sex with Hava. But it's the elephant in the room, is it not? Why else would the sons of Elohim be forbidden to play house with a daughter of Cain? 
because Cain was a literal child of Satan, and Tipi time was with his descendants brought about little Cains. Little Cains everywhere running about the earth, up to no good, wreaking havoc. Just so we're clear, fingering the Sephite theory as a closeted serpency doctrine, while ultimately true, is not the conclusion which I had earlier spoken of. We're not there yet. The tension here is how one can reconcile two separate genres of scripture in regards to the big events in Genesis 6. What if I told you that the location of the Mount of Worship not only affirms the Sethite theory, but the fallen watcher story as well? You probably never thought that the Aramaic, the Aramaic Targum would side with Edemic literature, but it does. Consider Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 in the Targum. And Yahuwah Elohim took the man from the mountain of worship where he had been created and made him dwell in the Garden of Eden to do service in the law and to keep its commandments. See what I mean? We have already covered the fact that Adam was created on the mountain of worship and then placed in paradise in my paper, The Two Creation uh, Contradiction, which I actually, you guys haven't seen yet. Maybe I'll do that another week. It's a pretty cool paper. What I purposely didn't tell you, however, is that Adam and Hava were returned to Mount Moriah after they were expelled from paradise. But wait, weren't Adam and Hava sent to the mountain of worship after being expelled from paradise? They were. Sometimes the mountain of worship is referred to as the holy mountain. The holy mountain and Mount Moriah are the same. Genesis 3, verse 23 in the Targum. And Yahuwah Elohim removed him from the Garden of Eden, and he went and dwelt on Mount Moriah to cultivate the ground from which he had been created. The cat is out of the bag. Meow. It says Adam cultivated the ground from which he had been created. Notice how he wasn't returned to Iraq or Turkey or the North Pole. Adam and the Siphites lived for a millennium, and some change on Mount Zion. Guys, that's the location of the temple. Israel is the land of Eden. Now you should be able to see why Noah returned to Zion after the flood. He had been raised there. He died there. That's where Shem continued the Meshulzedek priesthood from the city of Shalom. Now I need to stop right here. I'm going to just stop this. Um, I have some notes here. Okay, so everyone in this room and many of the people listening to this have all heard the North Pole theory for Eden. And I... I think that that is very, very likely the case. The problem is if the, if the North Pole is the site of Eden, then it's probably the site of Jerusalem too. And all the literature that I can find, they'll talk about how paradise was in the center of the earth. So you look at an AE, AE map and you go, well, what's the center of the earth? It's the North Pole. Well, those same writers will say Jerusalem is the center of the earth. You've all heard this before. They'll call it the navel of the earth. They're basically saying that Jerusalem and Eden are the same location geographically. So, contrarily, if Jerusalem's location is legitimate, uh, then it's the site of the mountain of worship. Um, however, if, if the North Pole is the site of Eden, and I'm totally open to that, I'm, I, I've seen the evidence, there's a lot of great talking points. That tells me that that's probably the side of Jerusalem, too, which means uh, it gets me excited. It means all of our geography is off, and 
in fact, the historical Jerusalem may have been on the North Pole. And that's where I think New Jerusalem's coming back down on the North Pole. So just everyone can kind of consider that and think about that, all right, as we move forward. All right, keep reading. In any ways, Mount Hermon is just to the north of Jerusalem. According to uh, the map we have with Israel, Mount Hermon is just, uh, you know, I don't know, a couple hundred miles away. It's not that far um, as the bird flies. That's where the watchers touched down. The children of Cain had initially spread out westward towards Gaza, but would have surrounded the Mount of Worship by that time. The plains of Jericho and Sodom along the Jordan, Hebron in the south, as well as the valley of Tel Megiddo in the north were likely all a part of their settlement plan. That is to say, if the watchers were to take wives with the daughters of men, it would only seem logical that they would descend upon a mountain revered by the Canaanites or the Canaanites, and Hermon was the one. Was it our true kingdom we long for? Uh, or I should, let me rephrase that. What is our true kingdom we long for but Eden? descended once again upon the earth. The story of scripture from beginning to end takes place in, and at the very least, sets its sights upon the promised land. So what I'm saying here, guys, is that wherever you want to place Israel, whether it's North America or Spain or South Africa, uh, I've heard Australia, I've heard all different places, uh, I believe that it all takes place in the same place. Um, Noah and Seth, they settled I believe, in the same place after the flood as where they were raised before the flood. Does that make sense? So maybe it's the North Pole, maybe it's Israel, I don't really know. But the Mount of Worship is the same, I believe, as where the temple stood. And it, the more you look at the literature, the more, to me, that the more that makes sense. It just seems like everything, um, it, 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 would, it would seem strange to me that you would have paradise and the mount of worship in the north pole and then mount Hermon is way over here in israel and the watchers are touching down there it's like no 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 they were all in the same area they were all within a very close traveling distance from here on out i hope to show you that both views are deliberately accurate the watchers forsook heaven and the sons of seth the holy mountain both by swearing an oath together we have already seen the watchers swear their oath in Enoch chapter 7, and now in 2 Adam and Eve chapter 20, the sons of Seth do the same. The comparisons are not by accident, nor are they intended to cancel each other out. So this comes from 2 Adam and Eve chapter 20, verse 24. After this, a hundred men of the children of Seth gathered together and said among themselves, Come, let us go down to the children of Cain, and see what they do, and enjoy ourselves with them. Try not to roll your eyes while telling me this passage only covers the Sethite theory, telling us nothing about the watchers. Well, I haven't gotten there yet. I'm trying to go about this in somewhat of an orderly fashion, and a good story takes time. They didn't do the math right, you tell me. There should be 200 of them. Oh, really? The Hebrew Masoretic doesn't say there were 200 of them, nor does the Aramaic Targum. Only the book of Enoch says 200. Therefore, second Adam and Eve is still in agreement with Genesis. But Enoch, oh, stop it. Perhaps Moshe isn't strictly speaking about Enoch. Or to put this in slightly different terms, perhaps Adam and Eve really is in agreement with Moshe and both parties consider the watcher incursion as a 
different event entirely. Even before a hundred Sethites swore an oath, the Watchers had already appeared. Follow along. Satan then appeared to him with 30 men of his host in the form of handsome men, Satan himself being the elder and tallest among them with a fine beard. They stood at the mouth of the cave and called out uh, to Jared from within it. Second Adam and Eve, chapter 17, 4 through 5. The hymn here is Jared, son of Mahalalel. Satan has arrived at the cave of treasures in order to trick and ultimately seduce Adam's third great-grandchild into a life with his Canaanite children in the valley below. But the math is still wrong, you tell me. No, it isn't. Why do all 200 have to appear with Satan at the cave of treasures? The other 170 were probably occupied, selecting brides, teaching magic, root cutting, and the art of warfare and stuff. Had second Adam and Eve counted 202 angels in his rank, I would agree with you that the math is wrong, but they didn't. Anything less than 200 would still be correct. If anything, it adds to the believability. The only time all 200 are recorded as having assembled together is on Mount Hermon while swearing an oath. The scene continues. Satan and his 30 helpers are successful in convincing Jared that they are Adam and his other dead fathers, thereby luring him away from the mountain to a nearby village. But something very interesting happens there in that village. But when the sons of Cain saw them, they wondered at them and thought, these are beautiful to look at, and such as we never saw before. So they rose and came with them to the fountain of water to see their companions. They found them so very handsome that they cried aloud about their, about their places for others to gather together and come and look at these beautiful beings. Then they gathered around them, both men and women. Then the elders said to them, the, angels, the, the elders here are the, the angels with Satan. We are strangers in your land. Bring us some good food and drink, you and your women, to refresh ourselves with you. When those men heard these words of the elder, every one of Cain's sons brought his wife, and another brought his daughter, and so many women came to them. Everyone addressing Jared either for himself or for his wife, all alike. But when Jared saw what they did, his very soul wrenched itself from them. Neither would he taste of their food or their drink. The elder saw him, the elder of Satan, as he wrenched himself from them and said to him, Be not sad. I am the great elder. As thou shalt see me do, do thyself in like manner. Then he spread his hands and took one of the women, and five of his companions did the same before Jared, that he should do as they did. But when Jared saw them working infamy, he wept. And said in his mind, my fathers never did the like. He then spread his hands and prayed with a fervent heart and with much weeping and entreated Elohim to deliver him from their hands. No sooner did Jared begin to pray than the elder fled with his companions, for they could not abide in a place of prayer. Then Jared turned round but could not see them, but found himself standing in the midst of the children of Cain. Second Adam and Eve, chapter 17, 35 through 45. That, that scene just... I find so haunting. I highlighted the sentences of interest. Satan's confederacy of fallen angels are selecting human women for wives and then asking Jared to do the same. In other words, 
ancient Edemic literature wasn't saying that the Watchers never took human lives. Rather, it simply wasn't interested in that fact. The only story which the Sethites were concerned with was their own. Soon after Jared's return to the mountain, it is safe to assume the Watchers have been busy procreating. That's my problem, you tell me. I assume too much. Well then, let's continue with the narrative, shall we? And the sons of Cain, who wrought all this, and shone in beauty and gorgeous apparel, gathered together at the foot of the mountain in splendor, with horns and gorgeous dresses and horse races, committing all manner of abominations. Meanwhile, the children of Seth, who were on the holy mountain, prayed and praised Elohim in the place of the host of angels who had fallen. Wherefore, Elohim had called them angels because he rejoiced over them greatly. But after this, they no longer kept his commandment, nor held by the promise he had made to their fathers. But they relaxed from their fasting and praying, and from the counsel of Jared their father, and they kept on gathering together at the top of the mountain to look upon the children of Cain from morning until evening, and upon what they did upon their beautiful dresses and ornaments. Then the children of Cain looked up from below and saw the children of Seth standing in troops on the top of the mountain, and they called to them to come down to them. Second Adam and Eve, chapter 20, 14 through 17. Again, that scene, that scene is so haunting. Like it's given this picture that the, the few remaining sons of uh, Seth, they're on, uh, you know, Mount, what I believe is Mount Zion, and just the valley all around them, Gehenna, it would be Gehenna and all around. They're just, they're, they can't, they're not allowed to come up to the mountain. Uh, we learn it's because there's like a fire, the spiritual fire that protects them. And they're just, you could just look down this valley. You could see all the women, you know, dressed up like, you know, floozies. And they're all, you know, playing like rock music. And there's probably pyrotechnics and lights and this big party going on. And just, you know, day after day after day. It says right there that the women seduced the sons of Seth with beauty and gorgeous apparel. But how can that be? I thought the watchers introduced beautifying techniques. They did. Enoch says as much. Chapter 8 of Enoch. Moreover, Azazel taught men to make swords, knives, shields, breastplates, the fabrication of mirrors, and the workmanship of bracelets and ornaments, the use of paint, the beautifying of the eyebrows, stones of every valuable and select kind, and all sorts of dyes, so that the world became altered, impiety increased, fornication multiplies, and they transgressed and corrupted all their ways. Enoch chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Again, you will say Enoch is proof that one account or the other is true, but certainly not both, as we are otherwise dealing with glaring contradictions. But I'm here to tell you that they're both correct. 200 watchers descended upon Mount Hermon and swore an oath, and then 100 sons of Seth did the same from their own mountaintop. We are simply dealing with two separate events that are closely connected on a linear timeline. To see precisely how this, work, this works, let's once again read from the Aramaic Targum, specifically to see if our sleuth skills can be employed as a remedy to this mystery. So I'm not going to read from the, the Masoretic, but you can see that on the left. Let's just read through the Targum again. Same, keeping in mind everything we've just read, let's read this again with fresh eyes. And it was when the sons of men began to multiply upon the face of the earth, so this would be the children of Cain, and fair daughters were born to them, and the sons of the great saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, 
and painted and curled, walking with revelation of the flesh and with imaginations of wickedness, that they took them wise of all who pleased them. And Yahuwah said by his word, all the generations of the wicked which are to arise shall not be purged after the order of the judgments of the generation of the deluge, which shall be destroyed and exterminated from the midst of the world. Have I not, have I not imparted my Ruach HaKodesh to them or placed my Ruach HaKodesh in them that they may work good works? And behold, their works are wicked. Behold, I will give them a prolongment of 120 years that they may work repentance and not perish. Samjaza and Uziel, who fell from heaven, were on the earth in those days. And also, after the sons of the great had gone in with the daughters of men, they bare to them. And these are they who are called men who are of the world, men of names. Genesis chapter 6. Boom, there it is. The sons of the great were seduced by beautiful women, eyes painted, hair curled. And who taught them the art? The watchers did. Therefore, the sons of the great cannot possibly be the watchers now, can they? If it's contradictions you're after, then the women seduced the watchers with painted eyebrows only to be taught the art of painting their eyebrows by the watchers. See what I mean? What this tells me is the sons of the great are indeed the same as the sons of Seth inhabiting the mountain of worship. But Enoch, you tell me, what of Enoch? I've already highlighted it for you. A few lines down, the Targum specifically references Enoch in stating that uh, Samjaza and Uziel were on the earth in those days, but that, but that they had already fallen from heaven before the sons of the great had gone in with the daughters of men. Boom, there it is. It doesn't actually say they were among the sons of great, only that they were on the earth in those days and also that they bared to the daughters of men afterwards. If you need this spilled out for you, the watchers first descended upon Mount Hermon. After making an oath, they taught the women the art of beautification, among many other art forms. In return, and with the watchers to guide them, the beautiful women seduced the sons of Seth from the bottom of the mountain. Do recall Satan and the 30 angels who led Jared out of the cave and down the mountainside. They were certainly not shy in taking vows. Then the elders said to them, we are strangers in your land. Bring us some good food and drink, you and your women, to refresh ourselves with. When those men heard these words of the elder, every one of Cain's sons brought his wife, and another brought his daughter. And so many women came to them, everyone addressing Jared, either for himself or for his wife, all alike. The watchers were showing Jared, son of Mahalalel, precisely how it's done. All right, guys, that was a lot of reading, got through it. And thanks for hanging in there with me. So how did I do? Did it, did it, does this make sense to everybody? Does, does anyone have any objections to the sons of Seth and the sons of Elohim theory both being correct and both happening in a, on a linear timeline, but one which we often get confused? I got it. I thought you did a great job with uh pulling those timelines together from those scriptures. So um, I just, I love it. Appreciate that, Robbie. Yeah, the first time I was, I was, my heart was broken the first time I read um, Adam and Eve because I loved the first book, Adam and Eve. And I get to the second book of Adam and Eve, I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> it's like the Sethite theory. And then people keep telling me, well, just disregard uh, second Adam and Eve and just 
uh, follow the first one. And I'm like, well, you can't do that because it's the same writer. It's just they happen to like, you know, the scroll. They ran out of scroll space and they had to form a new scroll, hence the second book. And uh, they do that all the time, like the, the writer of the Gospel of Luke and Acts or whatever. Um, so anyways, and then I, I went back and I read it again and again and again. And pretty soon, this is one of the things I love about scripture. The, generally, what happens is, is that people take their favorite theory. You know, they'll take their favorite book. Like, um, uh, there, there's some people who take the book of Jubilees. And if anything disagrees with Jubilees, they're just like, I'm going to throw that book out. I, I don't agree with anything but Jubilees um, or Enoch or whatever it is. And when you come across these apparent contradictions, and they're, they're all through scripture, these apparent contradictions, it's like, well, what do you what do you do with it, right? You just throw the whole book out. But I have found that if you really, you start reading more and more and more books, you start taking notes and you start putting them together, you actually see that the way that the Hebrew writers would, would tell these stories that they would only be concerned with a certain element of it. And so many times it, it feels like they're uh, contradicting something else. Um, we saw this last week when we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and uh, I pointed out how it would talk about like their children or a certain wife and then, but then there would be other children like, the, you know, it was, you don't always get the full picture in just a single uh, description. All right. Anyways, anybody have any thoughts at all? Am I off my rocker? Yeah, anybody funny, funny is, is that uh, I know Mike and I talk about different uh, positions that, you know, people will have on certain scriptures, and some of them are opposing, actually quite a few of them are opposing. We find that either they're both right, or they both may be wrong um, when you when you dig into the context and, and the other, and all the literature that's around it. So I, I am not surprised that uh, you pulled this together. And B, BJR uh, put in a, a, a good question. If it was sons of Seth with daughters of Cain, why was the offspring giants? And correct me if I'm wrong, but I put my response was the Targum separates these two uh, as shown, but the Masoretic does not make it clear in any sense. Yeah, and that that was the thing when I went back and read the 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 tar the first time I read the Targum, I just assumed that it was Enoch's account because it talks about Sam Jazz and Azaz. I thought that's cool, like it mentions them, the Masoretic doesn't. Uh, but when I went back and read it again, I'm like, I saw it. I'm like, oh, it does separate the two events because it it makes it clear. It, why would you say Azazel and Jazza were on the earth in those days, and then afterwards they, you know, versus you know the sons of the great? So it seems to be like for me that was the you know filling in all the pieces together, and it's just more confirmation of the Aramaic Targum. Uh, you know, uh, Mike, Michael and I were talking earlier today about some other texts, and I, I always say, like, the Targum has come through to me over and over and over again, and if it comes down to it, I'm going to, if there's if there's any kind of perceived contradiction, I'm going to take the Targum's word on it, because it just comes through over and over again. Once again, the answer there shows us it's both um, doing evil. <laughs> And it's not an either or. It it shows clearly um, when you listen and look into 
it is clear it's it's like um one happened and then the other event and as far as the geography we can't go so whatever if you want to say north or south beyond the ice either way so it's still um open to possibilities yeah and and just to rephrase my thought on that is that because last year, for those of you who were here last year in 2020, I put a lot of – I published an article uh, by a lovely woman who who did some great research on why she believes North America is the land of promise, the holy land in the Bible. And you, you can visualize it. You could see like um, – you could see where Egypt is and where Babylon is and, and you know – you like she kind of hinted at perhaps California being Egypt and you had the Red Sea there and all the old maps and you could you could visualize this. And then I've seen other people put in some great work on Spain and you know South Africa and all these different locations. When you read some of the uh, according to the official timeline, some of the medieval authors, they they talk about Eden, the land of Eden being east of India and if you look at east on a map, an AE map, what's east of India? Well, it's Australia. And you could think, well, maybe it's Australia, right? You have all these different possibilities. Wherever Eden was or Israel was, wherever it is, it doesn't really matter to me, right? Whether it's Israel or the North Pole or North America, it, my conclusion is that it's all in the same place. So just to reemphasize, if the North Pole is uh, the mountain of worship, and paradise was directly above that, which seems to be a very good cases for that. Then I would argue that the Holy Land was there too, and that's going to be you know mind-boggling for some people to accept that. Um, but it, it uh, yeah, they they're both in the same place. Like Scripture seems to imply that in every way, shape, and form. I was uh yeah wherever, wherever that, that may be. be. It yeah. isn't like what you're saying. It it's like, hey, it's maybe could no. It's it's in one location. This the story un, unfolds or takes place, and that's yeah. what's. It's like if we, it's more like, it leads us closer to the truth, not more um, away from it. So even if we have more possibilities, it's really revealing that we know. It's almost like New Jerusalem. It's like, okay, things are being revealed. Josh, you were going to say something? Oh, uh, yeah, I was just going to say it was, uh, <laughs> to be honest, I was like confused for the first couple of pages. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, and then things like it was, it was, it was very well done in that. Like, I didn't actually know where you were going or really what you were talking about. Um, and then pieces just kind of, just kind of fell into place. Because you you built like you it's almost like you're painting a picture and you know you start with one solid color and then you add more colors to it and then you don't maybe you add some of the same colors as before and then that's really kind of how it felt it felt like you know creating a picture or a, even a puzzle where it's like you don't really see what's on the on the puzzle until you get most if not all the pieces down and even you know five or six pieces missing can change what the puzzle actually looks like it was a concept uh album like progressive rock music like something genesis would have done back in the 80s 
progressive rock music. You got to stick with it and you'll find out the ending. So, yeah. so basically it got mixed up pretty quick. The um the pure line and the not so pure line. Yeah, I mean clearly one of the things we've been looking at like last week when I went through the the first Michelle Zedek and I want to reiterate the importance of the first Michelle Zedek. So last week we saw that According to Second Enoch, the ending of Second Enoch, which I had said, which I believe, even you know, scholars, you know, yeah, I know scholars, they will say that that was tacked on. So it's from a book we don't know what it is. Well, the same can be said of First Enoch. It ends with the Book of Noah, and so I actually believe these are the same book, the, the, the Book of Noah, the Lost Book of Noah. These are fragments from it, and we saw that the first Meshelzedek was actually Noah's nephew. And um, his brother's name was Nur, I believe it was, N-I-R. And it was an immaculate conception. And his, his, he didn't believe his wife when she said she hadn't been with any guy or whatever um, in the, the months they had been apart. Develops, uh, brings about this child, Michelle Zedek, and then Michelle Zedek's taken up to heaven. And the, the message that's being brought there is that the, the, the genealogies, the families have been so corrupted by this point. All that we have left is Noah and his three sons and the wives he got from a close relative. And, and everyone else is corrupted in the sons of Cain. And Yahuwah is basically saying it's the same thing that Yahusha said to the uh, when he was on the earth. He said that, you know, if these when he was criticizing the, the Pharisees who claimed to be the sons of Abraham. And, and he said if these he could make these rocks cry out like these rocks could become children of Abraham if he wanted to. And that's essentially what he was doing is like, look, I'm going to preserve this line. However, I have to, I will bring about an immaculate conception to make sure that these people, that this uh, lineage is not corrupted. And yeah. And so that's the, the, the whole sons of Seth storyline that through the years, they just kept leaving this mountain. And once you left the mountain, you couldn't come back back at that time and they would because Yah didn't want them to come back because they would go down and procreate and have children and become corrupted and um and i also you know believe that when it talks about noah being pure in his generation it wasn't just uh referring to his his blood he was pure um i was just sharing with rob oh no it, I may have been showing with Rob, but I was just sharing with Adam Fink the uh, wonderful text, which I might read in this group one night, the uh, Tales of the Patriarchs, which is a Dead Sea Scroll. And it talks about how Noah was, uh, it talks about the two ways he was pure, but it specifically says that he was pure in the truth, that he perfectly was obedient uh, to the law of Yahuwah. Uh, from the time of his birth, it, it didn't say he never sinned, but he was, you know, he was pure in that way, uh, and that, you know, when nobody else really wanted to be. So, any other any other thoughts? Right. So you are correct that the 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 sons of Elohim refers to angels. Hello. The sons of Elohim refers to angels in both theories in the sons of Seth theory and the sons of Elohim theory, but the sons of Seth theory says that the sons of Seth were angels. And there, 
that the, that's why I say that they're both correct. That the the mountain of worship that it was it was kind of like when Adam and Eve fell from paradise. They they lost their 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 shining immortal nature, uh, but there was they came down to the mountain of worship and there was still more falling they could have done. There was still they were still accredited in the eyes of Yah as being um, you know the sons of Elohim in to him. Hopefully that makes sense. I wasn't sure if you were confused by that. So, um, one uh, quick question, uh, just a thought that occurred to me, um, but I, I want to follow it up with something else. Um, when it says that Adam died, what do we like? What is the thought when it comes to him dying? Like because, he, you know, it says he died because he ate of the the tree of knowledge. Um, yeah, yeah. Does that mean that he actually perished? Does that mean that he went to Sheol? Does that mean that, like he is, like he he, he wasn't righteous, right? Like I guess he didn't ascend. Like it, it's yeah. not like he was taken away. What the flip happened? <laughs> what happened to him? Did he die? Die? Like for real? Die? <laughs> so he, uh, yeah, he for real died. He his uh, soul was taken to Sheol. Now there are there are slight variants to the story which I need to look at a little bit more. There's a wonderful book called The Apocalypse of Moses. Uh, another variation of that book is called The Book of Adam, and it talks about what happens to Adam when he dies. His soul is taken to Sheol, and <clears throat> his body is uh, taken up to paradise and uh, preserved. And so I I need to look at that. So it's kind of like, well, where's this cave that he's buried in? Is the cave on the mountain of worship or is it in paradise? And I need to look more at that. Um, but what what we what we learn is that um, Noah was instructed to actually in 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 various texts that I'm reading, Noah was instructed to take the body of Adam and I think Eve as well, and to put him on the ark. And so on the ark, they have the bodies of Adam and Eve. And when they, when the flood uh, recited, they were then instructed to put the bodies um, on Mount Zion or Mount Moriah. And so once again, we see another connection to Mount Moriah slash Mount Zion being the location of the mountain of worship that was right below paradise. So if you read the uh, Gospel of Nicodemus, which is a phenomenal book, I love it. Because when we talk about 70 AD, the mud flood, all this kind of stuff, and asking the question, did the, the first resurrection happen? Well, according to the Gospel of Nicodemus, the first resurrection happened at the resurrection of Yahusha. And this is where Matthew says that uh, the dead came out of their tombs and they walked around, right? And it's this weird, bizarre little passage. We're like, well, what do we do with that? Well, the, the Gospel of Nicodemus is all about these dead people who came to life and they and the Pharisees went and they they found out where these people were and they went and like started interviewing them. And what we come to find out is that the resurrection of the dead happened. And uh, the reason Yahusha came and died and went down to Sheol was to free his friend Adam. Adam was down there and he he went to get Adam. And then of course once he got Adam, everyone else followed. But he it's the story of how he takes Adam and resurrection resurrects him and takes him up to paradise. And, um, and so I, it's a beautiful story, but yeah, so that, and so th the question I asked then is that if, 
if the first resurrection happened in, let's just throw a year out, 30 AD, we don't really, I don't like 30, the year 33 AD, because that's the, the Freemason Jesus, but uh, historically, we know it, it, according to the, the Babylonian Talmud, uh, they, 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 make, they say in there that the, the curtain of the temple ripped exactly 40 years before um, uh, the temple was destroyed. That would place at 30 AD. And they also said that once it ripped, that they were never, the Sanhedrin was never able to meet there again and judge, which is crazy to think about that the last trial that ever took place in the temple was the trial of Yahusha for his for his crucifixion. Just crazy to think about. So that happened in 30 AD, and so that would have been the first resurrection. And then, you know, my my position is is that another resurrection happened in 70 AD. And so we see these like repeated events. I actually think there might have been another 700 years later or so, according to Enoch's calendar. So we have these repeated events, and what happens after that? Is like everything reset? Like do people go back to Sheol again? I don't know. Like if we were if we all died right now, do we go to paradise or do we go to Sheol? I I'm of the mind that we go to Sheol, and that we have to wait the next reset, the next uh, the next resurrection. So I went on a little tangent there, but hopefully that answered Adam's uh, fate. Yeah, awesome. Um, the 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 other thing that I was uh, looking to to try and cover was. I was just wondering if, if maybe I could very quickly in like a few short sentences sum up kind of what your thesis is for the article and then you can either confirm or deny kind of my understanding of it just in like a nutshell. Um, so the like Geneva, the Geneva Convention says like I gives me permission to give my name and rank and nothing else. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so so essentially what the 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 whole um, the, the the concept is is that um, Hasatan uh, had sex with Eve and created Cain, and uh, Cain procreated had kids. Blah blah blah. Then um, the Watchers, after a certain amount of time, who are these two hundred angels? Uh, they they saw hey, there's a bunch of hotties down here. Let's go, you know, let's go procreate with them. They they made it, created these huge um, hundreds of cubits. Uh, size per people and if you can extrapolate on what that means in feet that would be cool um then um after that time the the sons of uh cain um had some kind of also like sexual event serpent seed type thing now now i think i'm getting confused but that's kind of how it goes like the sons of uh, elohim um are different from the sons of seth no, the sons of Seth then fell and went with the, like the, the women of Cain. Some of them did, and they're yes, totally precisely. separate groups. Precisely. Then when you put everything together, and, and and serpent seed is the missing ingredient as to why, uh, just a straight reading of Genesis, why the sons of Seth and the sons of Cain were, were separate lineages. Like it, it seems, it, it's really weird if you just it's like why are there separate lineages and why were they not to to mix together? And so yeah, so. Satan tempts Eve. They have sex, have a child. Um, actually, um, I, I guess the Targum, and I take the Targum's word for it, the Targum says that they had twins. Um, Adam basically knew his wife after Satan did, and though he had known her before that, uh, and they had twins. They had 
Cain and Abel. When Cain, when Abel was born, Abel looked just like Adam. And it, the Targum says he looked at Cain and he's like, he doesn't look like me. I don't think that's my son. And so, yeah, Cain was this, the son of Satan. It's basically the, the plot line to Rosemary's Baby. Pretty crazy stuff. But if you, if you, if you watch Rosemary's Baby, the, the uh, Roman Polanski film from 1968, it's like serpent, it's just serpent seed repeated. And so, uh, and so now you have the lineage of Cain. And the, I, what I'm trying to figure out is the Targum says that they were twins, Cain and Abel. But then we also learn about uh, Cain and Abel each had twin sisters. And the Jasher makes it out like there were two sons and three daughters. So I, I actually wonder if there were five children that were born all at the same time, which is very possible. Uh, but only only Cain was the son of Satan, and so um, and then we see so Cain um, basically rapes one of his sisters that he wasn't supposed to. Uh, she was supposed to be Abel's wife, and um, he kills Abel, rapes his sister, takes her off. He forms his whole lineage. Then then the incursion of the Watchers come. The two hundred of them they touch down on Mount Hermon, which again I argue. Is wherever Mount Hermon is, it's in close proximity where to the mountain of worship is. They're they're in close. It's not like the North Pole and then Mount Hermon way over here. They, they have to be close together. The Watchers come down, uh, the two hundred of them form their their pact. They go take human lives, and then the Watchers, uh, these angels, help the sons of Cain seduce the the sons of Seth, and most of the sons of Seth leave their mountain and go down and intermix with them. And so now we've just got Noah and Methuselah and Lamech and their wives and a few sons, like Noah's brother, just a few people left uh, who remained loyal and didn't wander far from the mountain of worship. Does that, and that, that's when the flood came, comes. Does that all make sense? All right, good. I, I hope it, yeah. makes, sense. it makes sense. Yeah, sorry. Uh, my, my headset is not... Uh... I'm playing through speakers, so my headset turns off every 10 minutes all by itself if it doesn't hear anything. Um, but yeah, no, that that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, how, like, because I've heard that, I've heard a couple of different theories about these giants, these the first Neph Nephilim or Nephilim or whatever they were, um, that 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 they might have been referring to actually the, and I'm not sure if you've heard about this, but the 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 uh, there are no trees on flat Earth theory, which is that. All of the trees actually were already cut down uh, by by the uh, by these giants, um, and all of the mesas that we see littered throughout the U.S. and actually all over the world um, were are actually just the stumps of these trees, um, and that they, they look like tree stumps. They have they uh, have the exact same properties of tree stumps. They even have like large cellular structures that, that like. All of it is super crazy. Um, I, I follow a group that take these people. They walk around, and take pictures of these things, and they, they're trees. But the that that these giants were actually trees and not people. There's also a verse that says they they were walking around. Um, they look like huge trees walking around. Um, but uh, how, how large were these giants purported to be? It's I think it's a 300 cubits or something like that. How how many feet Somebody, is that? Somebody shared a picture. Um, oh, I'd have to dig into it now. It's on. It's in our Discord group. They sh shared a picture of a 
of a foot they found in the desert, a stone foot, and the foot is probably like um, uh, 30 feet long, and it was it's a it's a perfect foot. And so you, you can do the math. I did the math on that. It, it would have been hundreds of feet tall, this giant. And I, I do believe that there was a, a generation of giants, the first generation um, that we call the War of the Titans in like Greek mythology, and these guys were huge. Some people have speculated that the Grand Canyon, you know, young Earth creationists try to make the case that that was the, the flood. Uh, I actually don't believe that the Noah's flood was as destructive as young earth creationist uh, claim. For example, there's a lot of people in this room that are in the state of Florida. I love that state. If, if you talk to a young earth creationist, they will say Florida is the result of Noah's flood, that it's actually the runoff of the Appalachian Mountains, which I, I get the visual of that. Like I, I could see what they're talking about, but I actually don't think Noah's flood was that destructive where it like reshaped the whole earth. Um, I think that there's a lot of monuments that we see on this earth that predate the flood including the Great Pyramids. The Great Pyramids, um, I've read a source in here before that the Great Pyramids, I believe, were built by Seth. And so, um, and, fin and finished uh, by Shem. And so, yeah, a lot of these structures survived. And so the, the, the original giants probably were hundreds of feet tall. Uh, I don't believe that they were the trees. I believe that the trees were that tall. And there is a a passage I'd have to pull up out of Enoch, I believe, where it talks about the angels came and cut down the trees. I think that probably a lot of our Jack and the Beanstalk stories come from this. I think there were massive trees that would have grown inside of, um, you know, within the firmament, gone way up there. And then Enoch talks about how the watchers, and this is something interesting to think about because you don't think about evil people like this, but the watchers, it says, actually love their children very much. And as part of their punishment, before they were buried in the earth, they were forced to watch their children kill each other off. And so this was the War of the Titans. All the giants now are killing each other off. And I, I interviewed the, the individual who lives in Spain who discovered the, the Mammoth Mountain. It's like in his backyard. He's actually one of Rick Hummer's good friends. And as you guys recall, Rick Hummer was on several weeks ago to talk about the mud flood. And... I interviewed him, and this guy, you can find his videos on YouTube. He's done a whole series on this giant elephant. This elephant was so huge. It, like, it, its foot would have smashed city blocks. That's how big this thing was. But what's amazing about this mountain that's been turned into stone is that you can you can not only see where its ears and its eye sockets and its tusks were, it, if you you can match up the photos of that elephant with photos of elephants that are poach, uh, poacher today and it's lying in the exact same position as a poachered elephant and you could actually see the blood stains uh petrified in this mountain this elephant was killed it was poachered and um and it's been formed into a mountain and all these mountains all over the earth are probably just these giants and such so uh, I was going to say something. You know, I just lost my train of thought. I think the coffee's starting to wear off. Um, anyways, yeah, this, so that happened. The second generation would have been a lot smaller, as they said. And then there's that third, which, you know, I, I actually think that the all the, the fairy people, I, I do speculate that all the fairy people all over the world, every single country in the world, every single nationality has the little people. In fact, I know this sounds kind of cliche, but when we were living in Ireland, 
I actually felt like I may have had a encounter with the little people in the woods, uh, the, the leprechauns or whatever you want to call them. And, and I, I wonder if these were also the, the third generation um, born of the watchers that they're, you know, still on the earth today, especially since scripture tells us that the demons all over the earth are actually the disembodied spirits of the giants of the, uh, the giants that were killed in the first and second generation. So, um, I'm I'm also looking at um, uh, what we went over here, and uh, in Enoch, um, when you quoted from Enoch seven uh, one to fourteen, you had mentioned uh, uh, oh this is where the statue was three hundred cubits, but uh, these devoured all the labors of men until it became impossible to feed them. Then they turned themselves against men in order to devour them and began to injure birds, beasts, reptiles, and fish to eat one another's flesh and drink their blood. Um, and then the earth reproved the unrighteous. Um, is, is it possible? It, it seems like that this is maybe the beginning of uh, um, uh, uh, when people stopped becoming omnivorous. Is, is it possible that just actually just eating animals and eat like drinking blood is part of what that whole fall was? Like, because yeah, I've heard really, that 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 like yeah, yeah. yeah eating animals is is bad right <laughs> is what they say um and and that was part of that the fall so okay so it appears that the sons of seth that whole line they never ate animals i can't find a scene all the scripture that i can find not just implies but says specifically they only they didn't even farm the land they only ate from the produce from the trees whatever the trees produce on the mountain, even in, in times of drought, they didn't turn to eating meat. And so, and then meanwhile, you see the scene down in the rest of the earth, yeah, where they're devouring each other and eating each other, and it's terrible. The giants are eating people. Um, and the thing is, though, is that I cannot, I, I, I'm totally, if someone can spell me on vegetarianism or vegetarian purism or whatever you want to call it, um, I, I'm all game. My wife and I are like 95 to 98% vegetarian now. We eat very little meat. But when I look at literature, not just, you know, you would have to make a case that Torah was completely changed uh, to reveal eating meat, which some people make that case. But then I read Meshelzadek literature. It's all about sacrifices of animals. And I even see stuff about, um, you know, scenes in heaven where it appears that there is animals being sacrificed in heaven so and consumed. Um, like people don't think about that. They think of it as a spiritual realm. It's like, no, there's animals up there. There's clean animals like sheep and cattle, and they butcher them and they eat them, apparently, from some of the scripture I found. So I, I don't know. I can't make a case for that. That's that's if really interesting. Someone... Sorry, uh, no, because I, I was literally just talking to my mom about that the other day. <laughs> uh, about 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 the food, and uh, she was reading that um, uh, in Leviticus that you you essentially only ate the meat of that which you sacrificed um, for like uh, for two days, and then the third day you had to get rid of it. Um, and and I thought actually it was interesting because back in those days. Uh, you know, you would probably intimate, fairly intimately know all of all of the all the animals that you that were under your tend tender like care uh, that you tended to, um, and so 
I, I'm wondering if it was a de-incentivized, like a, a de-incentive essentially that Yah had put in place where it's like, yeah, okay, um, you want to transgress the law. I'm, I'm like, this is how serious I am about this. One, uh, you transgress the law, you're going to have to, you're going to have to go and find, uh, you know, um, little, uh, whatever the name of the animal is, uh, cow or sheep or whatever, or little lamb, uh, who's going to be your friend who you've already named and your family knows and you take care of every single day. And you're going to have to go and, uh, you know, sacrifice them. And then you're going to have to eat them. Um, and that's like kind of like a, a huge consequence. Like that, that'll be, that'll be like, you can imagine, like that'll be serious. That'll be like sacrificing the family dog. who <laughs> has been in the family for a couple of years, maybe. Um, because of your sin, because of your transgression of the law, you have to do that. Um, so I thought, I thought maybe that was why that was implemented uh, later on. Because uh, same thing with my mom and myself. We're just trying to make a case for why are all these laws why are, why is there all these like addendums to the law about food and what's clean and unclean and blah 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 um you know if if vegetarianism is the way like if you can just be vegetarian well, right. we'll just go and be vegetarian right <laughs> so one of, one of the things that's helpful to think about is and hopefully this next year as i do more articles writing on torah and the law because i really want to dig into it I've had some stunning revelations about the law recently, and one of the things is, is when you come to Torah obedience, you know, people start, you know, being like, oh, what, are you going to start sacrificing animals now? And first of all, if you read the law carefully, the only people to ever sacrifice the animals are the Levites, right? It has to be the Levite priest, and then it needs to be the fire of Yah lighting it. Like, you can't bring strange fire. Like, there's some severe consequences to going and just deciding you're going to like just have your own sacrifice, light it somewhere. One of the things, though, that is helpful to note is that within the law, like in Leviticus, um, there are no there are no sacrifices for purposeful sin. If you go out and sin on purpose, there is no sacrifice for that. Um, Two thirds of all the sacrifices have nothing to do with sin. That's something people don't think about. Two-thirds of all the sacrifices of lamb, cattle, birds, whatever, it is because you love Yahuwah so much that you want to give a joy offering and go and offer an animal. And then there is the other third that are just for unconscious sins, sins that you didn't know you committed. Um, most people don't realize that uh, Yahuwah basically says, like, if you repent of your sin, he will forgive you. Like, it, it, it's it, – it's not this like sacrificial system like people think about. So what is happening here? What's the picture being formed? Well, you have the you have these Levites. The Levites were never given any inheritance. They had no land of their own. They couldn't farm their own land. They wouldn't have owned animals. They lived in these Levite cities or houses. And so basically you going and sacrificing an animal would serve two purposes. One is that you are you're feeding them a meal. You're basically taking it to your priest and saying, look, you don't have any meat. I'm going to feed you. And you're bringing the meat to the, the barbecue. Uh, Yahuwah sets the fire for you. Um, you can't bring strange fire to this. And you're and then you're you're feeding the, uh, the priest, but you're actually more than anything. It's Yahuwah, the most high, saying, I want to eat with you. Like, I want to personally dine with you. And so you're actually eating a meal in the presence of the most high. 
And that's why two thirds of the sacrifices are just because you want so badly to go have a dinner date with the most high. Like, like I'm going to bring this lamb and I'll, cause I want to eat with him. Does that make sense? Like it's actually, we have this horrid picture of the old Testament. And I had this just reading through it this last year. I'm like, this is a beautiful picture. Like I, I, man, I want to, if I could have a meal with the most high in his temple and his sanctuary and his presence. Yeah. I'm going to kill this lamb. I'm going to take it over there and I'm going to eat with them like that. I, show of hands is anybody going to turn that down like if you can do that uh like it, the shekinah glory was in the tabernacle in the temple and you know his pre like his presence was there so um that's something that you know in the polyanity today when we all talk about you know all oh, the ruachs and you know everybody but the ruach we saw that the ruach was in everybody in the the flood account you know like it, it's in everybody but it, it's not the shekinah glory like i I don't know if any of us have ever experienced the Shekinah glory like like you would feel in the tabernacle, you know. So, um, any yeah, anybody disagree? Feel free to say so. That's just that's my my understanding what of the sacrifice. What you're bringing forward again is where the emphasis is on this God of War or God of whatever negative name they want to where we're shown that most of the offerings were for um, celebration because of a God of love. Yeah. And, and Taurus says straight out, like, all, like guys, all you need to do is if, if you, if you sin, like I said, there is no, I, I have yet to find, if someone could show me, show me, I have yet to find a single sacrifice in all the Torah for purposeful sins. If you go out and sin right now on purpose, there's no sacrifice for it. Um, and, the only thing you have is to repent. You have to personally repent. Um, it, it, not by killing an animal, you repent. And this is, you know, this is the point, of course, of bringing joy offerings and, and thanks, thanksgiving offerings is because you, you, you know, Yah wants to, you to turn from your sins and just be like, dude, I just want to spend time with you. Just come and spend time with me, right? And this is why it, you see later on scripture, like in Isaiah and stuff where he says, I, I hate your sacrifices. I hate your feasts. Because you come here and you just you don't even want to spend time with me. You don't care about me. You just want to, you know, oh look, I'm just gonna sacrifice some animals, get that out of the way, and then we'll good to go and keep on sinning. And you know, this is like church mentality today. It's the same thing. Um, yeah. That that's that's uh, definitely interesting. Um, but what like what about the uh, scripture? And I don't know the scripture off the top of my head. Uh, the verse. But it says that uh, even the animals have uh, like a, a ruach, um, and, and they seem to have understanding. They, and and it seems like we, like humans spoke, humans and animals spoke the same language, uh, you know, in the Garden of Eden and maybe somewhat up into the flood area, flood time. Um, yeah. And certainly, animals have spoken throughout Scripture in certain events. So it's like. I'm just curious, like, why, like, I always thought maybe the whole sacrifice thing was like, like you said, kind of having like a, a meal together, but then y'all wouldn't consume the blood of, like, y'all wouldn't consume the blood of an animal, right? Like that, like, if, if we can't, we shouldn't do it, and it's purported as the Nephilim doing that as a bad thing, um, right, right. you know, why would he accept that? And also... That in addition to that, there's the Cain and Abel um, uh, story where, um, you know, they brought their sacrifice 
apparently I've heard a secondary argument, which was that Kane brought kind of just whatever, and Abel picked the very best of what he had made or picked the very best things, and it was very intentionally picked. Um, but I've also heard that Kane brought meat and Abel brought veg like like fruit and vegetables, and I've heard the exact opposite of that, that Kane brought fruit and vegetables and that wasn't good, and Abel brought a lamb and that was all good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it has nothing to do with the fact that one bought a lamb, the other bought uh, grain offerings or anything like that. It, it, I'd have to look at where it is. And there's different books like Jubilees talks about it. I think Jasher might, uh, Adam and Eve talks about it, um, quite a few. And in every single one, it was Cain's heart was just wicked and evil. And the what's really interesting is in the Aramaic Targum, when right before Cain kills Abel, he does the same thing that um, um, uh, who, who is it? Um, Esau. The same. He gives almost an identical speech to Esau. Both both Esau and Cain say there is no afterlife, there is no heaven, there is no consequence or judgment to their wicked deeds, and and so. What it shows is that Cain ultimately did not believe in the Most High. Uh, well, crazy to think about, right? Because it's like I thought they were just talking with it. It's like, and he 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 just didn't believe in the afterlife. He didn't believe believe that there was a kingdom to come, and so his sacrifice was not pure. He didn't have a heart for it, and that's really what it came down to. Now, when it comes to the animals, you, you bring up a great point. I don't have a solution to this yet because I think about this a lot. I love animals. I have no problem being a vegetarian. I'm not one of those like, you know, just, oh, yeah, you know, like I judge my manhood by like, you know, you know, if the bell still rings or whatever. Right. Um, well, we know the relationship changed in the garden. It did. The Book of Jubilees, uh, if you take the Book of Jubilees, it does, and I, I believe this. The Book of Jubilees says basically we, we know that there was a confusion of tongues of Babel where he confused all the people and spread them out. Well, the first confusion of tongues happened in Eden. When the animals, um, it, it said that all animals spoke one tongue, the holy language, which we know, the, the language of heaven, which is uh, Hebrew, apparently, um, and that it was after the sin of Adam and Eve that there was a confusion where the animals could no longer speak to people. Now, this makes perfect sense. Anyone who's ever owned a dog or any of these animals, it, it, it it's almost like, you know, you could speak to your dog and your dog understands what you're saying. They know your commands. They know your emotions and they could respond to it. And yet we know dogs communicate with each other perfectly. They, they don't have a problem. And yet they're incapable of communicating to us. And so there is clearly like no amount of evolution or science or whatever has able, ever been able to fix that. And so there is clearly a confusion that's happened that Yah is keeping dogs and other animals from being able to communicate with us. So something did happen. And, you know, that's the hard part. It's like, well, why why can we eat them now? Because they, I, I don't believe that animals are unconscious of their existence. I don't believe that for a moment. I believe, you know, that, that whole argument, like who said they're not conscious of their existence? Um, you know, the uh, there's that story in the Targum with, uh, I just read in a couple uh, Torah portions ago, where uh, Balaam, is you know his his donkey sees the angel when when the donkey turns and speaks to him, the donkey starts talking about how he's an unclean animal and he will not be able to enter the kingdom of heaven, and I thought well that's really interesting and like it's telling the 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 targum is telling you that the donkey knew 
that you know that there there was a kingdom of heaven. He knew more than you know obviously Cain and, and Esau. So um, yeah, I think that animals do know that stuff, and that's why when I see animals, uh, I, I I I talk to them about Yahuwah all the time. Did I tell you guys a few weeks ago there was a raccoon down the road in the woods, and it was kind of near sunset and the raccoon was out like hunting for snakes or whatever. And I saw the raccoon and I started saying Shalom. And I started just telling the raccoon how Yahuwah loves him and how he made him. And, and the raccoon just turned and he looked at me and he got down on all fours and he just was turning his head. And I talked probably for about 20 minutes to this raccoon. And he was, he was maybe 10, 15 feet from me. And he was just listening to everything I said. Well, then I left and I went home. Well, that raccoon followed me home. And it, um, it actually, I saw it every day for the next week, and it was sleeping in the oak, the grand oak tree right outside of our bedroom window. And I'm like, that's crazy. This raccoon followed me home. And so I, I do, uh, when I see animals like deer in the woods or sheep or cow or whatever, I, I, I talk to them. And I, I, I kind of feel like maybe they can understand me sometimes. So, but yeah, that, I, I That's awesome. That. Yeah, I hate it. I, I really don't like eating animals. I, I really don't. But um, but I but like I said, if I could make a case against it, I would. I can't. I can't do it. I haven't seen it. So if someone can sell me on it using scripture, by all means. Um, I, I just I feel like what I've seen with the vegetarian arguments is that it's they'll take like little passages here or there, which to me are all circumstantial evidence, kind of like when they're in the wilderness and they're traveling and they they, they have all these cattle. They've taken them out of Egypt. They're not killing and eating them, and they're complaining that they have no meat, which is interesting because they had a lot of meat. They had all they raided Egypt. They took all the cattle out of Egypt, so the sheep, the cows, everything. So why why were they hungry for meat? And then, you know, he brings the quail, and as they're, like, putting the, the meat between their teeth, you know, Yah is, like, killing them all off. And so I'll, I'll hear that for, like, a vegetarian argument. And it's an interesting argument, but I think it's, again, it's it's circumstantial evidence. I don't see... I don't see the evidence that we're all supposed to be vegetarian based on that. I think you'd probably have to, um, and then this is what I've thought to do maybe, but you'd, you'd probably have to make a case for that Yah was making some serious, serious exceptions for the Israelites, um, exceptions to what his intention would have been, which would be to um, just eat you know, vegetables and things falling from the trees and things that, you know, give seed or whatever, um, which, which I've thought maybe that's the case. I mean, maybe Israel isn't something that we should, we should, we certainly shouldn't aspire to be like Israel because Israel is, well, we, you know, you can see the history. It's not great. Um, and they, they were constantly like just messing up all over the place. Um, so maybe the, like, as uh, I know a lot of christians will do this they'll be like yeah israel like that's like the like the ultimate like and it's like well no you want to be righteous and they were you know they were righteous sometimes and then then they would go off and you know worship that idol or go off and make those idols over there or you know go off and disobey and mate with those people and do the wrong thing right so hey no you're talking about how um, new jerusalem and the the shape of it possibly and how let's say it descends and one of the things i was um kind of like seeing is if it goes where we think it is say this that what we call where the north pole is it would almost be if you've seen this model of where we're at as um the the eye 
that we're in it's the same as the uh, as our eye is the same as um the earth and the creation that we're in yeah and um yeah i think see. um into the, into the stars you know casey did this uh, quite a while and, I, that if you imagine how if new jerusalem came it would block the false light reflection from the center and that would be it kind of all goes hand in hand there excuse me yeah please talk no yeah well i wasn't um yeah i the the passage of the eye i i have actually read a few books i need to track them down again recently where the ancients described the earth as an eyeball and they said that the 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 all the land is in the middle just like the eye and then the white of the eye is where all the waters are around it and i was like yeah that's describing in the ae map it's crazy that the the ancients understood that really well well it's interesting he these are again 2015 when you know many of us were you know be, um the flat earth was being revealed that this was also then the 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 eye even the moon that whether we, um, some of the things we've been sharing the reflection that it's giving back to where we're at here and then <clears throat> the eye and this shape and how it all kind of ties in the um um how do you want to say it the lens and that we're on this side of the lens we see this um false projection and he shows it from underneath uh, you you see this um this model like showing that the um iris is what you want to say shield not shield the um lake of fire or more um yeah i want to say hell but let's be more clear but really showing the uh, the the map or the true yep yeah, true map and what's interesting in that is again when we're looking to the center and where this um projection or light is coming from and where we're seeing here um, i don't know um, where i'm going clear on this but this map really shows what we in one way what we what hasn't been revealed yet and it's really when we look back to the center and and it's been showed in so many movies so many different literature that that you know um beyond the ice wall beyond the north beyond this direction there's something more and this is coming to i think a real um, again the revealing revelation in terms of our our um, focus has been brought back to let's say the father and with that we're seeing the picture of our reality much clearer and i'd like to say sometimes it's like an unfolding and this relation that we see with the eye if you if you can go back and look at those it makes so much sense and it shows you know our brain it shows you the inside where we're really looking and how it's all connected so it's really interesting how the earth and the eye and this uh, model, so to say, is so um, how do you want to say clear? 
Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, I hear so many, I've never taken a, uh, an official position on a flat earth map. I don't think, um, the AE map is the only map I've used, but every single scriptural passage that I can find, whether it's first Enoch, second Enoch, uh, uh, the Targum, uh, like rabbinic, uh, rabbinic narratives or commentary that are, is ancient, whatever, they all say the same thing, that they describe the earth. So many of them describe the earth like an eye. Like they, I've seen it, and they, they describe it like a circle and how there's these boundaries on the outside of the circle where the waves cannot, you know, move past. And, uh, you know, the, the abyss is in the, the center, the dead center of the earth, that, that black spot there. And, uh, yeah, so. Yeah, so that's what I was saying. It's interesting that we know, but we're having this, okay, isn't that where we're saying New Jerusalem is going to come? over this abyss yeah I, I think so i mean that, like i said i i said it was that i believe that new jerusalem is going to come down in the center of the earth it makes sense uh the the the, the general calculations that i've seen is that if now keep in mind on a ae map i think on a on a globe what did they say maybe someone can correct me there's a, about 70 something percent like 76 percent of the surface of the earth on a globe is water but if you were to of course you know spread out flat into a big circle the southern hemisphere gets immensely bigger um so that, that also tells me they could hide a lot there as well uh, especially since all flight paths are created by nasa most people even flat earthers don't know that that nasa actually creates uh, or all international flight paths where you can and can't go Anyways, um, if you were to take New Jerusalem and put it on the North Pole, and you know a rough estimate of how big we speculate the Earth to be, if you were to be in Antarctica, uh, then this is why it says there's no need for for the sun or the moon anymore. Uh, if you were to be in Antarctica, it is my belief that New Jerusalem would be bigger on the horizon than the moon. Like if you can all imagine like a super moon rise and it looks so big and beautiful when the moon first comes up a full moon, New Jerusalem would look bigger than that. That's how big that city is going to be. It's going to be massive. Like if you're standing directly under, uh, assuming, you know, everyone's divided, whether it's a pyramid or a square, I could really care. I don't care which. Both the pyramid and the square have been corrupted by the occult. I've seen people say it can't be a square because of, or it can't be a cube because of like, you know, Saturn and Mecca and, you know, all that stuff. And then others say it can't be a, a pyramid. But then you look at the Eye of Horus and, it, you know, it's all corrupted. Either one, assuming that it's a cube, if you were to stand directly under New Jerusalem, you couldn't see the top of it. That's how massively tall that would be. It'd be huge. I mean, you would have to be like, I think, hundreds of miles back to see the top of that bad boy. Um I, I hope that you guys, before we did this, uh, I should probably close up here soon. Before we started this um, talk tonight, I went on a walk, a prayer walk through my neighborhood, and I was, you know, looking at the alligators and the birds and uh, looking for bats and owls and all sorts of stuff. And I just had just really feeling the joy of my salvation, joy of just a, a gratitude and thankfulness to God that he woke me up to the truth. And I hope that everybody 
you know, sometimes we lose sight of that in the world when we we just there's so much. The ring had never come to him in these times. Had never come to him, and and he and he says, you know, Ganoff responds, you know, so do everybody who lived to see such times. But um, I am really excited that we live in these times, and the very thought that we're like in Revelation twenty, like we're like in the like a the the ending. It's like the ending of an M Night Shyamalan film, you know, like the surprise ending, like that that really excites me like discovering this stuff how weird existence truly is that the truth truly is stranger than fiction i don't know about you guys i get so excited having the curtain pulled and and seeing reality for what it truly is